You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. This is Adam Olson, Embark's accounting advisory practice leader, and you're listening to Accounting Matters. I'm welcoming back to the studio today James Durenberger, a senior director out of our Dallas office. Uh, to come here to chat about a topic that I think is really on uh, the tops of a lot of people's minds these days, which is the current economic uncertainty, uh, the economic outlook, and how really an uncertain economic environment can bring to light many accounting and reporting considerations. So James, welcome back. Thanks for joining me today. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> running, running one man down with Zach being out, but, uh, but I know we've got a lot to talk about, so I'm happy to jump into it. Um, so I wanted to start our discussion today just maybe talking a little bit more at the like, global macro level and just kind of helping set the stage. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that unless you've been like living under a rock these days, I think there's been so much chatter over the economic uncertainty. Absolutely. Um, it's a big buzz, big part of the conversation, especially throughout most of 2022. You know, if you think about at the start of this year, we were just kind of rebounding um, both from like a U.S. and even a global economic perspective of, you know, getting back on track from, you know, the past two years of COVID and all the setbacks we had obviously related with the uh, with the COVID outbreak and, and everything that came from that. But it's almost like as soon as we just got out of COVID, you know, you know, starting the new year fresh in January 2022 it was only mm-hmm. a month or so later that we then have this big geopolitical upending with the Ukraine and Russia conflict that's still ongoing. And, you know, a lot of people think about Ukraine, Russia being a very regionalized thing, which it is, right? There's a very particular part of the world that that's a direct impact to, but the broader implications that that has on a global economy, I think is being felt, you know, across the globe for Absolutely, sure. Absolutely, yeah. Um, especially when you think about the region being a large export of uh, global energy, mm-hmm. um, you know, exports of other, you know, needed materials. So certain metals, food staples, et cetera, that come from that region causes quite a rift in the global economies. And then even while we think about just like geopolitical concerns, you know, I think another common factor that we hear a lot being talked about is around just supply chains. I mean, mm-hmm. supply chains were strained during COVID. And then, you know, as we started to emerge from COVID, I think the consumer buying shot up significantly, but supply chains never really rebounded well from that. Right. So we see a lot of stress still on the supply chain issue globally. And that obviously leads to price increases and stresses on prices and inflationary pressures and things of the like. And then I think it's fair to say you can't really have a discussion around economic uncertainty without talking about inflation. Um, that's right. I think that's the biggest news headline catcher is what's happening with inflation uh, metrics. And then consequently, when central banks react to inflationary concerns, you know, their strategy they most often use is hiking interest rates. And that's right. Everyone, when they hear a hike in interest rate, I think it, it does cause a panic, not just to consumers, but also to investors and the like. So... A lot going on right there. Um, so I guess with all that said, from like a global perspective, you know, James, maybe you can share like, how is the, what is the U.S. current like outlook? Does it mirror yeah. a lot of what we're hearing, you know, globally, or are there some specific nuances that, or what's the latest going on with kind of the U.S. economy that analysts are talking about? Yeah, certainly. And, you know, we, we look to our economic genius minds, the, the Federal Reserve, and more specifically the Federal Open Market Committee. So they just actually met uh, and had a press conference on November 
2022 recently. So uh, we're going to look to the the Federal Open Market Committee, and they just recently met in early November. And the Federal Reserve Chair Powell gave some uh, insights on the economy. So I'm just going to go through briefly and summarize what he said because I think it's very important. So um, as you probably have heard, the Fed. Uh, adjusted their interest rates by 75 basis points. So that is actually an increase of 3.75% since the beginning of the year. Um, and remember, they're tasked with trying to stabilize prices. And so mm -hmm. this is, is, is the tool that they're using in order to try to get uh, inflation under control. And so they did say that for the last 12 months, ended in September, that we had inflation of 6.2%. Uh, so inflation is still running higher than the normal on average uh, yeah, 2%. normally around 2%. That's the, right. The average people have been using for a long time is like the constant barometer. And that's obviously been uh, upended a bit this year. So that, that's right. So, I mean, prices have increased. We've had inflation. There's a number of factors that are driving that in inflation. And so we did experience growth this last, last quarter. So there's been a lot of talk and a lot of, I guess, pessimism really in the economy that, yeah, we're headed toward a recession, but we did actually have uh, economic growth, um, but we have seen it slow. So the housing sector is weakened significantly. Obviously, interest, interest rates, rates are yep. rising. Mm -hmm. It's more expensive to enter into mortgages. And so sure. um, that has foregone people into purchasing homes. And so that slowed down the, the, uh, the housing sector. Um, also, it, they, it's put a, a, a way on uh, businesses uh, with fixed investments. Okay. What about unemployment? How's that looking? So actually, unemployment is still very low. And so it is at a 50-year low of job vacancies are still pretty high and wage growth is, is elevated. And Chair Powell seemed to stress that in yeah. the last meeting, like that it's really a, a tight market. And so, you know, that's another input I think they're looking at into saying like, okay, a little hope in like the horizon potentially is that you've got all these bad things going on, but yeah. there are a few good data points out there. And like, I think strong unemployment numbers are, are one of those. And then there yeah. still seems to be, you know, consumer spending is still there. Like there is, it is yeah. slowing down a bit, but it's not like it's come to a halt. That's so. right. Right. There, there's still strong consumer spending. So, you know, a lot of people, I think, try to throw around like this, the R word, which is like recession. Are we in one? Are we not in a recession? What is your take on that? Or what are analysts saying? Like, you know, I think it's, it's there's there's a certain viewpoint that some people feel like we already are there mm -hmm. or we're heading towards one. But what 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 is like the actual data showing on that? So, like I said earlier, the actual data shows that the first two quarters of the year there were there was contraction, but there's actually expansion okay. uh, in the last quarter. So you know, technically, we're not in a recession yet. Yep. Um, but you know, like I said earlier, we are seeing some indicators of a of a slowdown. So sure. it's it, it's possible that we could re get into recession, but it's also possible that we may not. So we're still in this weird uncharted territory where we've had this global pandemic. Yep. And then we've had, which, which has caused these, these unique constraints on our supply chains, right? right. That, that, that um, you don't have control over. And so this, the, I, I think the, it's still haven't, haven't seen uh, what's going to happen. Yeah. And I think you've got, 
there's a different viewpoint when you've got actual economists. Uh -huh. Like there's a definition of what technically what qualifies as a recession. Yeah. And then you probably have like your Facebook economist where yeah. people, <laughs> people are making their own conclusions and it's because like they're paying higher prices for certain right. things where they're seeing inflation or, um, you know, obviously the interest rates we talked about. So mm -hmm. they, they understand borrowing is more expensive. So to them, it's like, you yeah, know, we're there already. So yeah, the, the price at the pump, I mean, you know, the, the, the uh, Ukraine conflict uh, with Russia has, has, has caused oil prices to increase, right? right? And so that's, that's, a, that's something that people see very well. So what them. about if we're looking kind of beyond the current state or even like early next year, but maybe like a, a broader outlook, like what, have, have you seen a lot of indicators or like consensus on what analysts think the, the maybe longer, broader outlook is for the U.S.? Well, so I, I think the, the, the key takeaway is there's still a lot of uncertainty, right? Okay. I mean, even the, the Fed, you know, they like to provide clear direction, but it's uncertain on what, how high they're going to go. Now, Chair Powell did say that, that the rate of, of increasing the interest rates is probably going to start slowing, but they're not there yet. So they're, they're seeing how, um, how the markets are going to react, how... Um, the the various economic indicators are going to react to this last set of increases, and they're basically have said they're going to go uh, month to month and looking at it. Um, but they are still committed to the long term goal of providing employment and then stabilizing prices. And so, um, until they get to that stabilized price where inflation gets down to their normal level, they're going to continue to to raise the the interest rates. But there's still a lot of uncertainty in and how that's going to gonna gonna happen and how long it's gonna take yeah yeah i guess one other like aspect i would add you know we obviously do work a lot with a lot of companies that mm -hmm. are operating in the capital market space and i think you know when you think about from a deals perspective how oh yeah all the economic uncertainty has caused i mean really like a pause or like that it's almost like the capital markets has kind of gone into hibernation when we think about the volume of ipos and SPACs, mm -hmm. um, particularly in 2022 um, especially when you think about the past two years where there was such a boom, you know, SPACs were like the poster child for entering the capital markets. There were SPACs popping up all over the place, lots of, you know, IPOs that were, were taking place. But since things have kind of done a little bit of a 180 um, from then in 2022, you know, we've seen private companies that maybe were thinking about going down the IPO path kind of putting a pause on things because, uh -huh. you know, it's more challenging market to go and potentially try to do an IPO and maybe not flop. Um, obviously, there's a lot of market volatility. If anyone checks yeah. their retirement portfolio, you can definitely see um, probably some some shocks there. And that obviously impacts valuations. It impacts, you know, a lot of uncertainty on whether a company maybe wants to go forward with an IPO. Um, and then I will say, like, another interesting thing that, you know, you've got all these, like, kind of macro events going on, but just with SPACs particularly, you know, the SEC, even during the year, um, has kind of put a little bit more of a focus on SPACs with some of the regulations that have kind of dampened some of the enthusiasm, I think, investors and even, like, uh, financial institutions that were maybe operating as underwriters for SPACs just uh -huh. kind of taken a, the, a little bit of the wind out of their sails uh, because now SPACs are really being viewed as more of a riskier investment vehicle. Not to say they're going away or anything like that, but I think that, you know, there, there's more scrutiny for sure. And so that's that's put a pause on on the SPAC market um, itself. And, and, I, and I think like what we're seeing, you know, particularly as well with SPACs is that 
it's a very saturated market. And so it's also no surprise that, you know, new SPACs aren't entering into the market because there's so many SPACs that were formed that uh -huh. actually haven't merged with anyone. They haven't found a good target. Um, and that could also be just because valuations are kind of suppressed right now. So a lot of private companies aren't wanting to merge. And so there's a whole like calamity of factors that are coming together that just from a, from a deal side, I think has um, also impacted the volume of work that we've volume of work and volume of transactions that we've seen in that space. But I guess with all that said, um, you know, let's, you know, I think we've kind of like laid out the landscape here as far as what the economic environment looks mm -hmm. like, what people are dealing with, what companies are dealing with. So I know the, the main focus of this conversation is really to look at some of just the accounting and reporting considerations that tend to arise when yeah. you have a lot of these events going on. So Let's pivot to some of that discussion. So James, like, I guess maybe what are a few key areas that, you know, we want to highlight today that companies probably need to just keep in mind, just given everything that's kind of going on around um, the broader economic environment. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a great time. You know, we're approaching calendar year in. So yep. um, as we're approaching calendar year in, companies are getting ready for the annual financial statements and the annual audits. And so some key areas that, that I think that you'll need to pay close attention to and just a little bit more scrutiny, there'll be asset impairments, um, revenue recognition and uh, credit losses, any credit loss reserves, uh, compensation arrangements, uh, so debt and liquidity, and especially going concern analysis um, at the end of the year. Okay. So let's um, let's maybe like dig a little into each of those and just highlight some of the reminders um, that we want to kind of put out there for our listeners. So let's start with asset impairments. You know, I think when we think about asset impairments, I think the first thing um, that comes to mind is just figuring out, okay, which assets and yeah. do we have at our business that we need to think about for a broader impairment assessment? Because I know we, we've talked about asset impairments on a few different episodes on this podcast, so. There's definitely a lot of a lot of good information that we've talked about previously if if people have checked those out and if you haven't just you know a reminder there are different models for different asset types so that's right maybe one thing you could start with james is just maybe just summarizing kind of like some of the major asset classes and maybe what the impairment model looks like very high level yeah so the impart in, in, in the impairment model there's basically three asset types of uh, the indefinite live intangible assets so um, for this group, it's uh, it, it's uh, basically all the intangible assets um, besides goodwill. And so we want to look at impairment uh, is done on an annual basis or whenever triggering events occur. So uh, within practicality, we usually assess trigger, triggering events on a quarterly basis because that's our, you know, typically when we do our our other reporting cycles, quarterly and annually. And so the, the test in itself is it's pretty simple. It's just a one-step test uh, looking at the fair value of the asset compared to the carrying value. Yeah, and that's for indefinite live and intangibles, right? Yes, okay. indefinite live yep. and intangibles. So what about uh, intangible assets that have a finite life or your fixed assets? What does the model look like for that? Yeah, so, they're, so the uh, long-lived assets, so basically, uh, we look at the impairment when a trigger event occurs. And so here there's uh, multiple steps. So first we, we look at if, if there's a trigger event and then we focus on recoverability. Uh, and then from there, if, if, it, if it indicates that the asset has been impaired, then we actually focus on uh, measuring the asset. Okay, yep. 
Yeah, so it's test for recoverability. If we don't recover, it doesn't mm -hmm. look like the asset group is recoverable, then we'll, we'll measure that um, impairment loss for the asset group itself. That, yeah. Yep, that's right. And and you know while part of the part of the analysis is is looking at the asset group, you probably won't have to redefine the asset groups um, from the uncertainty of the economy but if you are considering transactions or you're changing the nature of your business right from this time point then you probably you might have to reassess yeah like um, a restructuring, restructuring activity, activity could potentially yeah. change the way you assess your asset groups yep good point and then what about the last you said goodwill yeah for so. good yeah for goodwill it, it, it's similar to the to the indefinite live intangible assets i mean it is indefinite live unless you're a private company, you take the private company option. Right. But um, here we look at impairment on an annual basis uh, or when triggering events occur. So, you know, again, a triggering event could be any of the factors that we're talking about now in the economy. And so we'll, we can talk about that here in a minute, but um, then if there is a triggering event here, we'll, it's just a, it's a test where you're looking at the reporting unit level and then measuring the fair value against the carrying of value to see if impairment has occurred. Yeah, so we kind of going through that, you know, we talked about there's, each of those things have like a trigger component. Yeah. Um, you know, if some companies may have actually already evaluated impairment, um, you know, during 2022 in an earlier yeah. quarter or an earlier time period or something, just depending on the circumstances. But um, for those that haven't, you know, like, and they have an annual impairment test, maybe the, the trigger aligns with their annual test. It just yeah. happens to be the case. But if a company is trying to think through whether they need to do an impairment test, for example, for, for fixed assets, which is only trigger-based. Like, what are some common conditions or events that, you know, companies would think about in the context of whether or not a, a trigger so is, you know, quote-unquote been met? Yeah, so, you know, the first one, and I'm just going to go through some notes here, is is an increase in raw materials, labors, or other costs. Now, a lot of companies are experiencing that right now. So, that is something that you probably want to, you know, put a little bit more detail in and, and, and look at how is the company been impacted by the increases in, in material and, and labor, you know, because labor has, yep. has been increasing. Yeah, and particularly on like impairments where you've got, you know, a lot of times it's a cash flow analysis, right? And yeah. so like obviously increased costs reduces the cash flows and um, has an impact there. And so that could, you know, obviously um, yield a different result from just that alone. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, negative cash flow or history of negative cash flow is another triggering event. Um, that one, you know, if if you do have a big increase in some of your supply or constraints because you cannot get materials in order to build your your end product or if, if that's it, or if you're in a service-based industry and you, you don't have people to perform services, um, your, your negative cash flow yeah, and I would say even like if companies have been like tracking their cash flows during the year, like yeah, what actually happened maybe versus what their forecast was month over month and you've been missing it consistently or something, that's mm -hmm. probably an indicator as well that like that that's a, a negative cash flow like uh, trend you're seeing as well to keep in mind. Right, absolutely. Uh, another one is, is a change in the legal or regulatory uh, area uh, factors, a uh, political political factors or, or business. So, you know, if there's any impacts from the conflict in, with Russia and Ukraine or any other regulatory impacts like uh, price caps on gas. So, yep. you know, some oil and gas companies have experienced that where there are other countries 
where because the price of natural gas has increased so much that the the, the company the country has actually put a price cap yep and so that's you know something to to consider um as well and then uh, uh you, you know, changes in key management um, oftentimes you have a individual that is really the success factor for a of an area of the business and so if there is a turnover of that critical key person that's something you have to really think about like is is that going to cause a an a, a trigger event for impairment um another one is like market conditions um deterioration in environment that the entity operates in so that an environment so that could be uh, is there another competitor that's come in that's really gonna gonna take your business away and you have to assess whether there's been impairment, it, it could be uh, labor market conditions. Uh, and we mentioned labor earlier, but um, you know that's part of the the environment you're working in. Uh, macroeconomic conditions. Um, yeah, that's probably a big yeah. one, right? I mean, that was you know most of our conversation up to this point is there's a ton of macroeconomic conditions, so it's it's likely one of those alone could be considered, you know. Uh, enough to say a triggering events occurred depending on your you know your business the location or the impacts of any of those events that's right and i think you know as we're going into the end of the year and we're doing this analysis i, I think most companies will have to provide some more information and, and discussion on you know what is the impact of of these these economic events how is it impacting the company how is the company responding to it that maybe it's not a triggering event because we have these other other uh, levers in place, or, or we're, we have these other plans in, in place. So I think you're gonna, if you don't put that in, you're gonna see more questions from your auditors um, because they're aware of the economic environment as well. And and um, just like during the pandemic when we had to go through and provide more information, um, we're gonna have to do do that again here with these this impairment analysis. Yeah, I think it, another thing just to mention is like, obviously there's a lot of judgment with a trigger, and it's a qualitative assessment, right? Yeah, so yeah. like, you know, holistically look at all the different factors. Like this is just some of the suggested ones. Like if you actually go into the guidance, they have also kind of examples of common triggers, but they also right. acknowledge that there could be other things that are more specific to you um, that you wouldn't want to necessarily like overlook. So I think that's important to also keep in mind. Um, one thing I guess, I, you know, a question is around like market capitalization, especially when we think about the volatility in the stock market. Um, it, Cause there is a, I know the guidance also has for goodwill specifically when you're thinking about impairment that sometimes a sustained decrease in share price could be a potential trigger as well. But if a company's market capitalization um, is below its book value, is that, I guess, is that circumstance alone enough to say a triggering event is required to do an interim goodwill impairment assessment? It could be, but it, it's not an absolute. I mean, it you know the market capitalization does or should reflect in an in a efficient market, right? The yep. expectations of the the cash flows uh, by our market participants, um, but our threshold is actually more likely than not, and so. Um, companies should consider, you know, what is driving the market capitalization decline, and what factors is it? Are you know, is it is it really is a temporary uh, decline? Is it is it due to to certain other factors, or is it a, a permanent decline? Yeah, yeah. If it's like a sustained decline that's mm -hmm. going to impact you, it's probably more likely a trigger than something that is, you know, a blip itself. So, 
you know, a sustained decline. If it's like driven all by, you know, customer demand decline, then right. probably that could be an indicator because that would probably fall back into some of these other, um, you know, industry or market or macroeconomic conditions that we just walked through that that customer decline would would satisfy. So let's wrap up impairment there. And then I think the next one you mentioned was that, you know, economic uncertainty could also cause some implications around uh, revenue recognition. And That's then right. on the, the related balance sheet side, um, it could have impacts maybe around um, credit losses as well on the receivable side. Mm -hmm. So I know step one, you know, if we're, people are thinking through ASC 606, step one is all about identifying the contract with the customer. Um, you know, whether that exists, because you need to have that step, you need to have a contract that exists yeah. before you can move forward. Um, and so the guidance is explicit about different things that are necessary to say that a contract exists. But one of those is around evaluating collectability. Yeah. And so, you know, if we think about everything that's going on, like, I don't think it's out of question to be like, this is likely probably an area that could be impacted, right? Collectability itself, is that is that fair to say? So yeah, it, it very well could be. Like you said, in order to recognize revenue, a company has to conclude that it's probable that you're going to substan collect substantially all of the consideration um, that's listed in the contract. And so, I mean, you know, realistically, you should take a good look at your your customers and and reassess it and assess whether those economic environments have impacted them because um, that'll impact whether you record the revenue or not. Yeah, and you know if you've if you don't have like if you don't feel like collectability is probable and you're getting cash, then like you can't really do anything with that. You more or less have a liability on your balance sheet for the cash you got because until yeah. you truly satisfy that kind of collectability criteria for step one, you can't really move through the rest of the RevRec model. Um, so I think that, yeah, that's, a, that's good to point out. Um, but let's say, um, you know, a company, you know, they know their customers are struggling or whatever to make payments or, you know, goods are, you know, like they've got limited cash, so they're looking for maybe some a way to kind of ease the burden for paying for goods or services they're receiving. How does like, how does that potentially impact like the revenue assessment if a company is offering like price concessions, for example? Yeah, so the guidance is pretty clear that you have to factor in price concessions and uh, whether you're going to provide them when you're looking at the collectability. And what you have to do is 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 estimate that and then uh, adjust the transaction price accordingly. Um, and then, and then, and then also, you know, if if you believe that, well, if that the customer's gonna not pay, then then you would take that into account as well. Right. Yeah, that's interesting about um, you know evaluating um, whether their customer has the ability to pay or not. Right. I think it's a it can be challenging to conclude that. You know, thinking about that particular for existing receivables you know there's obviously going to be a lot of judgment that's required depending on facts and circumstances you know it it's definitely important to keep in mind like i said if um a company cannot conclude that collection is probable at the inception of the arrangement you can't recognize the revenue mm -hmm. any cash you receive like we said you know you got to put like a deposit liability up all right let's so let's switch gears to the balance sheet side so we talked about um obviously what could impact what goes on the income statement around some of the revenue recognition and collectability considerations. But, you know, when we think about 
receivables that you know companies have on their books um, for the payment they're supposed to receive, you know, I would assume there can be a lot of implications there, particularly for you know, obviously we got new Cecil guidance mm -hmm. for most for public companies right now, and then obviously going into 2023, um, private companies will have to apply Cecil. So thinking about yeah. credit losses as they relate to their receivables, I would imagine all this uncertainty just creating estimates around that, you know, when you think about Cecil is about creating an estimate over the loss of the life of the contract itself yeah. can be challenging. Is there any like tips or advice you would like tell people as they're trying to think through, well, crap, what do I need to do about my, my credit loss reserves? Yeah. I mean, so Cecil, it, basically current expected credit loss. So, you know, while we've looked at Cecil and some companies when they implement it looked historically, we are required to look at it prospectively. So what do you expect? So we have to incorporate the, the current economic environment. And so, I mean, really going back and looking at your customers and, and okay, so given that we have a receivable from them or a, you know, whether it be a, a, a accounts receivable current or more of a long-term notes receivable arrangement, financing arrangement, um, has, has the economy impacted them? Do we think that it's impacted them. Um, and then, you know, just kind of assess that. So you, you probably- So it's more than just like, cause I obviously under the incurred loss model, it was a lot of yeah. historical analysis. And then just looking at what's going on today, Cecil's current conditions, obviously you factor in, use some historical experience, but it's really that reasonable and supportable forecast where yeah. like the big question mark is and where the challenge lies, right? Yeah. Yeah, so you, I mean, you can look at your customers compared to similar customers that are that you have some uh, some financial information, like a like a, for a credit rating, you know, right. as an indicator to see how the credit agencies are responding, and then just looking at your customer to see are how what are their payments? Are their payments slowing down? Are they are they late? Because that that could be an indicator that that they're having some troubles. So a lot of like people set up different models. I know the guidance yeah. for Cecil doesn't prescribe a specific way how you have to measure the credit loss. Right. Um, you know, it gives examples of some ways to do. So there's a bunch of different things used in practice. Um, but what what are we seeing, or I guess clients or companies doing with some of their models when they're thinking about, um, you know, the need to revise those models? Yeah, I think it's important to have a sensitivity analysis um, because we don't know what's going to ultimately happen uh, with interest rates and the economy, you know, impacted from them. And so having a sensitivity um, analysis within those models and so weighing, you know, the, the probability and the outlooks. So, I mean, depending upon what industry you're in, right, you know, housing industry is going to look different than uh, manufacturing. And so I think, you know, really being prepared and sensitive, adding some sensitivity analysis. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of companies where they'll, maybe they run like a worst, okay, good, best yeah. scenario. And they've got a bunch of different outcomes and it's just adjusting kind of, like you said, the probability of each of those different outcomes in their models to figure out like what's what's realistic based on current conditions and then obviously like what's the go forward look there so um and then i guess i would all, i would just add to for like a lot of CISO models is like there's always the ability to do some qualitative adjustments so like if you're using more broader economic data to maybe 
as a starting point for forecasts or things like that, and it's yielding results that maybe just don't make sense, there is like flexibility in the standard to make some qualitative adjustments if you need to. I know one, kind of the third area you mentioned was uh, compensation. Oh yeah. And so when I think about compensation, you know, a lot of times it's like, I think one of the more complex areas is a lot of share-based payment arrangements that we, we see as part mm -hmm. of a compensation. Um, and I can see that there could be impacts there with some of the economic uncertainties. You know, for example, a lot of awards, you know, may have a performance target, right? Like, so they've got, you know, you achieve a certain revenue goal or an EBITDA goal and you, you invest in these options or these awards or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, given that there's been like a lot of disruption, a lot of volatility, like there's a likelihood that some companies may look to modify those agreements, oh, right? Yeah. Maybe make those those performance um, conditions more achievable or remove them altogether or whatever the circumstance may be. But can you talk a little bit about what happens if um, a company does decide to modify like a share-based award with a performance condition? Yeah, so sure, on, on modification date of an equity award, management has to reassess uh, whether it's probable that the original and modified award uh, vesting conditions are met. And so, you know, depending upon the, what, whether it went to probable or improbable, um, the probable probability of vesting drives what type of modification guidance should apply. So, yeah, so there's just revisiting that. Right. You know, thinking through that, there's four types of modification. So depending on whether you're going from probable to not probable, not probable to probable, it's a lot of probables in here, but like, <laughs> depending on which way that the award went, um, you know, there's different guidance for how you would subsequently look at um, the accounting for that as well. And then I guess I'll add, cause you know, we, that, that's specific to equity classified share-based awards, but for those that are like, you know, maybe you've got liability classified um, share-based awards that are modified. So in those circumstances, you know, the, the exercise that you have to go through is a bit more straightforward because those awards are, you know, essentially remeasured at fair value anyways, each reporting period. Um, so in that case, whenever there is a change in a performance condition, like our example, a company would essentially just recognize the fair value of the modified award um, using those modified terms on that date. Um, and then another aspect of share-based arrangements that I, like when I'm thinking through things that could potentially be impacted by just this over, you know, overall economic uncertainty you know, especially when we think about the stock market, for example, and all the ups and downs we see mm -hmm. in there, it's just around volatility. So volatility is obviously a big assumption oh, yeah. that's used in a lot of um, pricing models. So, you know, some companies may be thinking about whether or not they could exclude some of the volatility during the year, like try to argue, well, that's an anomaly or whatever uh -huh. the case may be, because it's so much more significant than maybe historical volatility has been. And so, you know, that's a question I know, like I've, I've received from clients before. And so I, you know, my, my usual response to them and what I'll share um, is that there is a general presumption that volatility data does reflect the broader market. And so even if there is um, a significant difference in like what companies are historically experienced, it doesn't mean you should just exclude it from the company's estimate of volatility. And, mm -hmm. and I will say the SEC is, also has a, a viewpoint on this as well that the staff um, has shared and, and noted that there are very limited circumstances where there can be exclusion of things from, a, from an, a volatility assumption. And even in those very limited cases, it's expected to be what they say is rare. So 
um, it's a it's it's a hard argument to to win, I would say. So let's kind of round out our discussion with the last area that we were going to talk about, which was around um, just like debt and liquidity considerations, which makes a lot of sense. We're talking yeah. about interest rates increasing and just uh, you know impacts to to business and customer demand, et cetera, things like that obviously have liquidity impacts as well. So, you know, obviously when there's impacts to cash flows, there's a downturn in the economy. Um, this is going to bring up challenges in those areas. Um, I guess in cases where companies are potentially looking to restructure their debt, um, you know, for whatever reason, um, what are some of the things that they need to keep in mind if they're gonna kind of move forward with the debt restructuring? Yeah, so if, if they're gonna move forward with the debt restructuring, you have to keep in mind uh, whether you're basically hitting the trigger for a, a TDR, a troubled debt restructuring. And so- So that's the first step you would go through is like evaluating yeah. TDR, okay. Yeah, evaluate. So in order in order for there to be troubled debt, uh, for it to, to to be classified as troubled debt, there, there's two conditions. First, the company has to experience financial difficulties, and then the lender has to grant a concession. So there's a, a specific guidance on this, uh, ASC 470, um, to evaluate those conditions. And um, then you just walk through that to determine whether the the modification is a troubled debt restructuring or or not, if it's uh, an So if it's not way. a troubled debt restructuring, then what, what, what do you look to then? Yeah, then you have to the, decide whether it's a modification or an extinguishment. So just a general like debt modification or something. Yeah. Okay. Nope, that's helpful. You know, I'll also add that, um, you know, obviously during these times, like when things are stressed, you know, there's a lot of changes that are often made um, to debt arrangements. So it could be like extending the maturity date. If you've got debt coming due, it could be talking to your lender about trying to change timing of payments, um, maybe modifying covenants. If you've got pretty mm -hmm. strict covenants and you're looking at those and you're like, yikes, we're not, we're, we're looking a little dicey there and trying to get, be proactive around that. Um, but when I think a lot of times when something like that is orchestrated with your lender, um, the lenders will often charge a fee um, in order to um, allow for that modification. Mm -hmm. And that fee, you know, is meant to, to compensate for making that compensate or making those changes. And then in the absence of a fee, like sometimes I've also seen where they'll just change the interest rate. And so a higher yeah. interest rate is their way to like, you know, more or less basically compensate for making the modification itself. So I think one thing, and I just highlight that because when you're trying to think through the TDR guidance, you know, a lot of times people are like, yes, check the box. We're having financial difficulties. But when they get to that second question about like, has this uh, concession been granted, um, which is more of a quantitative assessment in reality, a lot of times the fees that are charged or the higher interest rate that's charged by the lender in the absence of a fee, that, that sometimes kicks them out of like meeting that second requirement. So it may feel like you're in trouble as a company, but you actually don't meet the TDR guidance. So, um, but speaking of covenants, I guess, um, so that's another area I know that often troubles some borrowers is yeah. um, debt covenants, especially in, in trying times. So can you walk through, like if a company has a covenant violation, um, how does that impact the reporting of their debt? Potentially, yeah. I mean, it, it could impact the reporting of the debt. You, if you violate a covenant, and um, it could make the debt due, right? So yep. then, if the debt's due, then it has to be reclassified from non-current to current, right? Um, and you know, 
you know, treasurers are usually on top of this. Uh, hopefully, they're they're monitoring their yep. their debt their debt uh, covenants and looking at them. Um, but in 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 doing so, what they'll do is they'll seek waivers and um, from from the lender. And so you really have to assess those to to see whether uh, whether it is going to be a trigger. Uh, for the debt to be reclassified from current to non-current. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of times companies, you know, obviously like work with their lenders because they've either failed a covenant or they're planning to fail a covenant. But if they fail the covenant and they get a waiver, um, I do think some companies automatically assume that holding that waiver gets them out of having to classify the debt as um, current. It can be non-current. And that could be the case, but you know, you have to also think about, for example, does the waiver more or less provide protection from that covenant, at least for a year, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have to look at, are there any future covenants over the next year that it's not probable of meeting for the company itself? So if there's more restrictive covenants, like maybe they only waive your failure of your Q4 covenant for 2022, but then they don't waive your Q1 of 2023 right. and it's more restrictive, you know, you got to think about like, is that probable? I'm going to meet that next one that's coming due because if you're not if that's not the case then you 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 probably can't then conclude the, that your the, debt is non-current right? that's right there's yeah. a failure so just something to keep in mind versus like if the lender is willing to waive all covenants for example over the next year then you know you've got some time to breathe i guess um so i just like to point that out because i think sometimes people get a little a little mixed up on um you know, maybe some of the relief that a covenant could provide or when they're trying to negotiate covenants, they're making sure they're negotiating for the right things. Um, so if we have a covenant violation, for example, and it makes the debt current, I know you mentioned going concern mm -hmm. uh, earlier yeah. in our discussion, and I would imagine that that could have a significant impact yeah. on the conclusion around going concern, particularly if a company is worried about can they, you know, the whole analysis is whether you can meet your obligations that yeah, are coming due. That's right. Um, so let's put debt aside because that I think that's a clear one that that could be that could be a huge hurdle to overcome or may just sink that may sink some of the going concern assessment unless there's a restructuring of that debt. But what are some other maybe factors that could also be relevant to think through um, when a company is, you know, going through its going concern assessment. Yeah. So, like as a reminder, going concern, we have to assess whether the entity can continue as a going concern for the next year. Yeah. Right. And year it's, from the when the financials are issued. That's right. right. So it's not year end. So, like you know, keep in mind, like kind of when your audit report or you, you know you're going to file your your financials with the SEC or your financial statements are ready to be or available to be issued if you're a non-public uh, company. That's right. And so in, in doing so, what a company has to do is look at your, your future class cash flow projections, right? And so we just, you know, we've been talking about the economic uncertainty. So the future cash flows. So your collections, your AR turnover, um, also you, the supply chain disruptions, if you are having a hard time getting raw materials, that is going to impact your ability to sell and product at the end, which is gonna impact your cash flows, right? Um, so reduction in revenue, reduction in, uh, in, in customer demands. So then also looking at the journal liquidity, so the, the ability to fund your operations for the next 12 months, yep. um, and then your ability to, to access uh, lines of credit, um, other, 
other sources of of financing in order to meet your obligations. Yeah, so, that could be tough. Like, yeah, you know, if credit markets tighten, or obviously the cost to borrow is more expensive because the interest rates are higher. That's right. Um, you know, so there's there's also you know just broader like liquidity needs, like you said, that are important to keep in mind. Yeah, and 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 you're probably going to have to spend a little bit more time flushing out, providing more information, t discussing. Yeah. How, how how the current economy or what you're going to forecast interest rates are going to be right. would impact your liquidity. Yeah, sometimes the going concern assessment, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's a role forward and like analysis or memo, but for a lot of companies it it can be and yeah. more like stable times. But this may be, you know, a particular year where there's a bit more scrutiny for sure from your auditors as they're doing their own procedures and diligence around that assessment and the conclusion reached there. So... Um, definitely worthwhile to, to spend a bit more time, you know, thinking through that as, as you go through it for the year end. Um, all right. Well, that's, I think, a good place for us to wrap up. Uh, you know, I think we had a, a, a good discussion, covered a lot here. Obviously, there's could be many more things that also come to mind. Um, just wanted to, you know, obviously share our thoughts on some of the more significant ones that we, we, we tend to see or get questions around. Um, you know, James, thanks for uh, sitting with me for a bit. I appreciate you uh, sharing your insight and uh, obviously want to thank our listeners for listening in and uh, look forward to welcoming everyone back on another episode of Accounting Matters. Thank you, Adam. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.